You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13 I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be all idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 20. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them, tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of the Lord, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested their God, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come before your word this morning and we need to learn. I pray that you would teach us things, that you'd help us to see things that are not always self-evident, that, that in fact are 
something that we are blind to apart from your spirit. Help us to see this. Um, Give me words that don't distract, but that draw our eyes to you, that, that draw our eyes heavenward to give you thanks, to see the mighty deeds that you've done. Pray this in your name. Amen. Hello. Uh, my name is Ryan Alanius. I am one of our parish elders. I didn't introduce myself at the beginning, so I'm taking a moment to do that now. Uh, so, why are we in Psalm 78? The reason that may not be very appealing is because Brian told me he really wanted to finish Romans out. I couldn't have the last text. So, but, but that's not a good enough reason. Um, there, I promise there's a better one. Uh, we are reading Psalm 78 because um, history is important. We always live in days in which remembering our history is really important, but in days where an accurate depiction of history is in jeopardy, um, it's especially important. It's especially important that we can tell the story right. The culture we live in loves creating um, post-modern storylines. I don't know if you've noticed that about even recent movies and TV shows, that there, is a, there are stories formed that try to help us empathize with evil things that people do to understand, well, why is it that they would do that? Um, let's, let's really see what, what's going on there and, and be able to see oh, how they got there. Um, Asaph, the psalmist who, who composed Psalm 78, understood this issue of telling the story right better than any of us. Um, and so the, the version that we tell of history really matters. This Psalm 78 is one of the longest psalms in the Psalter. And it has a lot to teach us. It is storytelling. And that's, that's going to be the word that you hear tossed around uh, by me again and again in this text this morning. And what I hope that we can see is that the focal point of the story really matters. The focal point of the story really matters. And the grander goal um, of this is not to just know what the story is, but to encourage us to be a church who sings that story who sings of the story that we're a part of, who tells it to the next generation. And we had read uh, for the scripture reading psalm, um, the first 20 verses of this psalm, but I'm going to be hopping around throughout the whole thing. Um, So I'll be sure to let you know when I'm doing that, but uh, keep keep your Bibles open as we do so. And the angle of the story that we believe here, as evidenced by what we're seeing in this psalm, is that, there were, how we tell it shows fruit in the next generation. There's actual, tangible fruit. And the story that we're singing, it, it begins first by a lived experience. Right? That's how stories form. Lived experience, or having been told it from someone before us. And then what happens is that we make meaning in that. We drive home a purpose to that story. And the punchline that God's people should receive from the psalm is this taste and see in this particular psalm, to taste and see the, the, the wonders that God has done. And so it's to remember those things and end in worship. That is my prayer for us this morning, is that we'd be able to end in worship. 
God is praiseworthy in all that he does, and we have reason to sing of his power. God is faithful even when we're faithless. Okay? Let's see how that happens in this story psalm. So why tell this story? God has ordained his, the way that he uh, unrolls his mission in the world is actually through generations. How? God's covenant people need, not, um, need to not only live in accordance to what he says, but to teach it. That is how this mission happens. So the teacher, Asaph, in this psalm, has been told something that he himself needs to pass on. You see that in verses 3 and 4. Look with me. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. How was Asaph informed of this teaching? By his ancestors, and then the ancestors before them. This teaching has been passed down, and we see um, in verse 5, these are things which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So there's a few different generations that we see in this psalm. What we didn't see is after verse 20, there's, there's actually the expanse that's happening here is all the way from storytelling in relation to what happened in Egypt all the way to 1 Samuel 4. And it doesn't tell all the history between those two points because Asaph has a specific purpose. There's, there's something he's trying to get at for his audience here. Look with me in verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. You see, uh, peppered throughout this psalm, us referring to the Ephraimites, Asaph referring to the Ephraimites a few different times. Why is he referring to them? It's because of what happened in 1 Samuel 4. I'm not going to turn there, but I'm just going to describe something. that The Ark of the Covenant was leaving Shiloh. Why was it leaving Shiloh? Because the Ephraimites leaned on their own strength. Look with me. We're just getting the context here. Look with me at verse 60 of Psalm 78. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. And then again in verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim but he chose the tribe of Judah. And so here was a tribe that was leaning on their own strength. And as a result, God punished them. He removed his presence from their midst, and he was moving his presence to Judah. Um, And the Ark of the Covenant, so the Ark of the Covenant left them. And this, Ephraim became the iconic tribe that was known for leaning on their own strength and not leaning on God and his strength. So Ephraim became the iconic tribe, and here is Asaph teaching a lesson from that moment in history. We're going to come back to these tangible markers, how Asaph is again and again pointing to different tangible markers that God has given to his people to remind them of something that is a bit of a riddle here. Before we get there, parents, there's, there's something you should hear when you hear that there is teaching to the next generation. This, this is actually for us to remember 
to teach something. And consider this morning as we talk about this, what your life teaches. What does your life teach? Moses told us that we have to teach things to our children. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 7, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Remember what it says next. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise. So, there are several generations mentioned in this, and, and uh, for some of us who were raised in the church, this refers to what your fathers told you, and, and maybe even what your grandparents told you, and the generation before them. If you weren't raised in the church, this, and you're a first-generation Christian, this still has a lot of relevance for you, because here lies our mission, our mission is that we actually teach these things. And kids... Where are you, kids? Um, hello. Uh, you are to learn. This message this morning is similar to your parents telling you lessons from their own lives. You might grow tired of the stories that your parents tell you. Um, think of that story that you always hear from them. But you should hear it with there being an actual punchline that you need to understand from it. Uh, or, or consider maybe when you've disobeyed your parents, that there are actual ways in that when, when what your parents have been tasked with is to, to bring you into obedience, that when you cross that, when you don't obey them, and they express their love to you still, you get to learn their love for you in new ways. And in the same way here, we see the amazing deeds of God by listening to them, by reading those Bible stories again, even though we've heard it ten, hundred times. And by learning of God's love from your own parents' lives. So I've spoken for a moment about uh, okay, who, is, who is called to teach and who is called to learn. Hint, we're, we're actually called to do both in this. Um, and now I want to talk about the curriculum. What is it that we're telling to the next generation. Remember, he's telling in verse 4, there, this is central to this whole psalm, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deed to the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So here's the problem, the problem that we've already seen in the context of this story. From just the 20 verses we read, we, we see rebellious generations. Generations um, upon generations on scene who just keep screwing up. And if you look at this from a moral angle, the looming question is whether the, real, the next generation can really do any different. Will we really be able to do any different from the people before us? And it may not be easy to see what's really going on here. Israel's History shows a sinful people that God set apart for himself, failing to trust him over and over again. Which is why we need to understand verse 2. Central. Uh, Verse 2 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Okay, let's break apart those two phrases. What he says there, of parable and dark sayings or hidden things. 
There are hidden things that our fathers have told us. One way to translate hidden things is riddles. What can happen in a riddle? It, it can go right over your head. You can miss what this is actually about. He also calls it a parable. Where else do you see parables? We're going to come back to that. Um, Charles Spurgeon further explains something about how we should read parables. Beneath the gushing flood, he's referring to this, this parable it's spoken, beneath the gushing flood lay pearls and gems of spiritual truth capable of enriching those who could dive into depths and bring them up. So this morning, we need eyes that are able to see these gems, that are actually able to, to understand what Asaph is getting at. So, how do we do that? My next point is that we don't smudge the story. Do you ever just really botch a story? I'm, I'm actually really bad about doing that. Um, <laughs> I don't do that this morning. Um, don't gloss over the unfortunate truths. The ones that you don't really, those details you don't want to mention in the story, we have to tell them. Israel was a people who forgot. You see that, you can see that stated a few times here, and I'm, I'm just going to mention it because we need to see it in a few different places. Verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Verse 32, despite his wonders, they did not believe. Verse 42, they did not remember his power. So this isn't just like forgetting to do your homework or forgetting to get a project done on time. This is receiving generosity from someone, from, from God himself, and forgetting it. Not giving him thanks for it. Being stubborn about um, justifying Reasons that you shouldn't trust him, that you shouldn't give him thanks. It's forgetting to pray in a really busy season of your life. It's forgetting to read your Bible in a really busy season of your life. Because, oh, I have a lot going on. But do you see, we start to justify those things. Rather than coming back to giving thanks. So Israel repeatedly forgot and were resistant to this chorus, this focal point of verse 4. And instead of telling the praiseworthy deeds of God to the next generation, what they did was they emphasized another version of the story. Another version of the story in the wilderness. We had a lot of hard times. But over and over again, we pulled through. Or... uh, God had a hard time showing up, but we always, we did our part. That, that's not what the story is, but that's often what they lived. And so the natural disposition is to forget the story. It's to forget that God's called us by name. It's to see God's gifts and to call them mine. It's to expect that this is something that I deserve. Or to think of last minute money that's come through to your family and uh, that he's, has, he's always provided for your household, and it's to say, I'm, I'm, I'm just so tired of skimping by. I, you, you miss the gifts of God because we are so set on demanding more. 
don't mishear me. I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask things from God. I'm not saying that that's what this text says. I'm just saying the natural disposition of our hearts and how quickly we fall into complaining, how quickly we try to justify forgetfulness and justify rebellion. Israel was faithless in the face of God's glorious deeds. And there can be an assumption that we would draw that, oh, if I would have seen a rock with water gushing out of it, I would, I would have done so differently than them. But we actually get surprised in our own lives, surprised or maybe even defensive, when our sin shows up in new ways. And I, I really handled it over here, but now it comes out over here. It's the same for Israel, right? They, they learn to trust God, maybe that he could provide water and rock, but then they're like, can he give us bread? We take ourselves too seriously and we hide the wonders that God has done to protect ourselves, to protect our own egos. So there's a temptation here to hide those things. Um, how, how do we see that in our own culture? In society today, uh, Carl Truman in The Rise and the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, it's a great book, um, he explains how we've gotten to the point of normalizing uh, personal demands for autonomy, normalizing uh, being driven by my own desires, being driven by my own sexuality, being driven by my life choices. And the ironic thing about all that is that that godless language is nothing new. Asaph is mentioning it here. If you look at verse 8, you see that clearly, that, um, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Stubborn and rebellious generations tell really lame stories. Consider how the story plays out if we were continued to be utterly shocked and defeated in the face of adversity. Yeah, he, he provided water out of a rock, but yeah, can he provide food from heaven? Can he, I need protein. Can he give quail? Um, forgetting God's provision over and over again is more deep-seated than just a brain that has bad memory. We tell lame stories willfully. It, it, it says, uh, let's see where this is. Sorry, I didn't have this marked. Um, in verse 18, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. So they tested God by demanding. They did this willfully. A heart of entitlement tells a really boring story. Right? It lives that, and then what is the, the version of that story that you tell? If you are not acknowledging how God has been compassionate and gracious to you. So, okay, we see that God suddenly takes away things. Um, there are certain comforts that he takes away from us. Ask this of yourself. What story, what song comes out of your mouth, out of your life? Are you set on singing of God's praiseworthy deeds, even in really dark and difficult days, when your job is on the line, when you're having a really bad week? Or are you set on singing of your own entitlement to God's gifts, of your own entitlement to things? Something that struck me as I've been reading through this psalm this week is, is how, how smart God is in his graciousness that he actually gives us real and tangible experiences of his love. 
Like what we see here, that Asaph is reminding people of when, when this Ark of the Covenant is leaving Shiloh, when that God's presence is leaving, is God gave you this physical parting of the Red Sea to your ancestors. It's just one expression of God's power, his leading um, people into safety. He pours water from a rock. That's just one expression of his determination to keep his promises and show his abundant grace. He, he mercifully slays those who could have infected all the people with wickedness. Church, you're, you're attentive. You, we must be attentive to the markers that God's given to us. He's given us um, this physical book. He's given us baptism. He has given us the Lord's Supper. He's even given us particular glimpses in our own lives of his kindness. And so do you sing this story? Or do you ignore it? When Thanksgiving comes around and you have to spend time with that weird uncle or maybe even family that you really enjoy, are you shocked by the stubbornness of your own heart? So, if I haven't hit it enough, you, you, you can basically see this irreconcilable chasm here between God being so faithful to his people and us being stubborn, us being rebellious, us forgetting, right? And, and I pray um, this morning that God would, would make this part clear to us because um, this just being a moral exercise of do, do different, it's no different than what all of Israel has done before us. It's nothing new. It's not what we actually need. So we despair. But, but there can be a version of godless despair. That we can actually despair of these things and co- go to repentance as, as you might go to repentance when your hand's caught in the cookie jar. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are, are, are we actually repentant or are we repentant because we're caught? Are we repentant because there will be consequences? Uh, read verses uh, 36 and 37 with me. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. So we can produce godless repentance. Now here's what's scary. Uh, godless repentance doesn't have to ignore God. It looks to him when it finds convenience. It, it shows up as works righteousness. It's noticing, oh, I'm a thorn bush and I'm, I'm producing these, these thorns. Next year, I'm determined to grow apples. It just doesn't happen. You, you can't do that. Uh, we, we have stage four cancer and, and we actually need something that no fellow man can provide. So we have this great mystery How do we merge the chasm? For starters, I'd like to read um, just one verse of a hymn from John Newton. He says, These inward trials I employ from self and pride. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes, earthly joy, that thou mayst find thy all in me. To set thee free and break thy schemes, earthly joy. 
that thou mayst find thy all in me. Do you see the riddle? This covenant bond demands that we make the focal point gratitude toward God. It, it demands that we see his faithfulness. It demands that we see that God remembers when we forget over and over again. He is merciful to his people because this is what he does. This is what he does when he binds a people to himself. Uh, I want you to see this from, um, or hear this from the Westminster Confession. In the chapter on covenant, uh, this chapter 7 of the Confession Section three, he says, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So God doesn't cease to fulfill his plan, even though we're faithless. God chose a people that forever distinguishes them from the rest of the world. Uh, if, if you look forward in this psalm, you see a section of God actually unleashing his wrath on Israel's oppressors. Isn't that funny that, that over and over again, Israel was rebellious, but they didn't get the same thing. Egypt received it, but his people didn't. Why? It's because God made a covenant with them. It's because he promised by his own name that they would not, that, that he would not fail in his love for them. And so I, I want to read one more quote. This is the quote that's on the front of your worship guide. God never tires of giving. Even when we are not grateful, he gives and gives and gives again. Sometimes when others have grieved him, as we think, we suppose God will visit them, punish them, or deal hardly with them. Instead, he lavishes more tokens of his love upon them. How does he do that? The story that we tell is is curious because what actually had to happen was that the author stepped into the story. He took on flesh and the only one who was able to be faithful, the only one who would be able to keep God's promises. I want you to see that in two ways this morning. First, hear him and believe. The only possible answer to this irreconcilable divide is justification by faith. We being justified by faith in Christ. Christ came and told the same parable. And he told it in many parables of himself. Hear this uh, from Matthew 13, 34 and 35. It's referencing Psalm 78. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what was what's been hidden since the foundation of the world. The author knew that no one would be able to live, let alone tell the true version of the story because no one was ever ever going to be able to live faithfully. He came that those who believe in him would be able to do that because he himself lived faithfully. And he 
was their living water, the water that poured forth from the rock before Israel. So verse 42, look with me. Um, They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from their foe. How would we ever do differently? Uh, the, the only way is, is it actually this, I'm reading a lot of scripture, but I think it's important to tie this all together. Uh, what 1 Corinthians 10 says in, in verse 12 from our scripture reading this morning was, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You're hearing of all that happened to Israel. You're hearing these stories from your ancestors. And remember, take heed because this, this taking heed is actually a death to ourselves. It's not, okay, let me do differently. It's dying. It's what C.S. Lewis said until we have faces. Die before you die. I know I can't do anything. Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Um, this is what Thanksgiving is. Second, so first we saw um, that Jesus told this parable and he lived it. And second, we see that he is the good shepherd. He's the shepherd of Psalm 78. We see in verse 52, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Verse 70 to 72, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his his skillful hand. From the beginning, God was committed to the covenant that he made with his people. And through the line of David, he would be faithful. He would be our faithful shepherd. This didn't end with David. It's living by what Asaph called his people. Um, This this faithful shepherd lived by what Asaph called his people to in verse 7. This shepherd is the only one to not break faith in God, the only one to trust him. He's the only one that didn't, didn't forget his father's deeds. He's the only one that kept his father's commands. And all that he did was praiseworthy. All he did paved the way for a generation not yet to be born to be able to live in obedience to him. And so it, here comes this amazing reality that we live in, which is our unity with Christ. Those of his fold have a sweet unity with the good shepherd. We are distinct from the world because we sing Psalm 78 righteously. He made a way for his spirit's presence to never have to leave us. His spirit made us able to digest the riddle. This is the gift of all gifts. We've received grace that binds us forever to this shepherd, that justifies us, who actively intercedes through the one who actively intercedes for us. It's amazing. He gives us a spirit to seal us as the property of Christ. When our names are bound to Christ's name, do you know how God sees you? In your failures, in your faults, in your rebellion. He sees you and he calls you his own. And he calls you, uh, he calls you his own son. And so his heart is God's heart. How do we respond? Tell our kids the story. Learn every detail that God tells you and share it and sing it. Learn to be a good storyteller. 
And second, we pray with assurance. We actually can pray knowing that the author of the story is with us. And when we see all that God has done for us, we're now made able to respond to adversity, even in our sinfulness, with praise. Church, pray to the Father. He has called you his. Pray that he would make a church who is able to sing of his wonders. Pray that your kids would be able to sing of his wonders and pray that God would make you able to teach your kids if you're a bad storyteller. Pray that he'd be able to make you able to tell this to the future generations. And last, we come to this table. Uh, Wednesday night we had a doctrine and culture and we talked about communion, um, which was just such a sweet reminder to me. Um, We were discussing what communion is and what struck me was how distinct communion is from any other table on this earth. How distinct this table that the church gathers around is from any other table on earth. It's a table where we are made able to laugh at our own foolish history because we're centered on him. We acknowledge that we're sinners and that our flesh needs to die and it has died in him in the one who more than any time where where God's wrath was unleashed in, in the retelling of his, Israel's history in this psalm, the greatest unleashing of his wrath was on his own son. Far, far greater um, than what he deserved. It was what we deserved. And we have assurance by that blood, body and blood of Jesus. So we're reconciled to God. We have also been reconciled to one another. And what else is there to do but to feast together? To feast together this morning, to feast together this week, and to sing the song of gratitude to our God. So I'll pray and we will receive communion together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live lives that sing this story, that tell um, this mysterious reality that you have bound us to your own name. You've given us unity to your son and you call us your own. Pray that that even as we take these elements, um, that you would teach us how to be a people that feast together and sing with gratitude. Um, Not dragging our feet, but jovially. In your name, Lord. Amen.